chapter 5. If you're um, using the Bible in the uh, pew, this is on page 48, uh, or you can click there or turn there, or I'm going to have the verses up on the screen, so if that's easier for you, go that route. We have been uh, in a, we're in a series this summer going through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Um, Exodus is this epic story of the children of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt and God establishing them as a people in their own land. Um, the Bi- we're, we're looking at the story from the Bible's perspective. We haven't been like watching Ten Commandments or uh, Prince of Egypt, which are great movies. Um, but how does this story, the th- thing that we're asking is, how does this book help us know God? How does it reveal who he is, what his character is, what his heart is, his heart toward people? Um, How do we know God based on how he reveals himself? Maybe not how other people try to explain him in a wrong way. We want God to show us who he is so that we can then in turn know what it means to be in relationship with him, to follow him, to guide, be guided by him as we go through our lives in this world. Uh, and so over the last couple of weeks, we've been, this is our third week in, the first week, again, emphasizing this idea is how does this help us know God and what can this help us know about God? The first week we talked about the fact that God is one who is still working. That even when it maybe seems like he's not working, he is working. That God never takes a break, never pauses, never gets tired. That God is always working. And last week we talked about the fact that God is one who hears us and responds. He is not far off. He is not at a distance. He is not aloof. He is not um, careless as far as who we are. He hears us and he responds. Uh, So this is where we've been talking about as we go on the first two parts. And this next part, we're going to focus on another idea of what we can know about God. Start off, I want to ask this question. How many of you have ever been on a flight that had really bad turbulence? Who's ever experienced that? Not fun, right? What, what words come to mind to describe? I'm not talking like, like, I'm talking like the whole plane is just shaking. What words come to mind when you experience that kind of turbulence? Yep, there you go. What else? (laughs) Prayers. What else? What what words? What else? I'm going to die. Say it again. Uneasy, terrified, fear, scared. Say it again. Panic. There's a lot of different things. I've flown quite a bit in my life, um, and I've so I've experienced turbulence many times. It doesn't really bother me. Unless it's super intense or it's prolonged. Uh, there was one time when I was actually flying to Israel and they let us know there's going to be a little bit of turbulence and the plane started shaking a little bit. And then I'm not kidding, it felt like it dropped three feet straight, which three feet isn't a whole lot unless you're in a big, huge plane. And the whole plane just went, ah, and just screamed. It was super, super freaky. We made it. I'm here. We're good. Another time we were flying, I was coming from California back home to Chicago, and it was a previous church I was a part of. Worship leader and I had gone out for a conference, and we were coming back, and it it was probably to this day the worst turbulence I've ever experienced, like just holding on to the seats, everybody kind of panicking. And the woman sitting next to us across the aisle, everybody was freaking out. She was white-knuckled, looked like she was going to faint, super, super scared. And so it was a good distracting because we were kind of concerned for her. So we tried to encourage her, ma'am, you know, we're praying through this. We know the guy and just doing everything we could. And she goes, I know, I think, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I was in a plane crash once. What? 
what do you say to that? <laughs> She's like, so it's just hard not to relive this. And it's like, uh, well, I'm sure this is a different pilot this time. You may not, and, and that's really the thing. When you're experiencing those moments, when it's super, super bad, you might not think about him or her at all when the plane is just, it's a great flight. You're just looking out the window. It's open skies, beautiful. You don't think about it. But once the turbulence hits, you start asking, who is flying this thing? Who is the person flying this? Do they know what they're doing? Can they handle how bad this is? Are they making it worse? Are they, they going to help us get through this or are we going down? When the turbulence hits, we start asking, is the pilot in control? Is the pilot in control of this plane? As we move into chapter 5 of Exodus, it's not that the turbulence of the story is starting, because there's been turbulence since the first chapter. Here in chapter 5, the turbulence is getting even worse. What they're experiencing as a people, what they're experiencing as a nation, it's getting even worse than it's ever been. And in these next couple chapters, what we're going to see is the answer to our plane question, our flying question, also applies to what we see here in Exodus. Is the person flying this thing in control? As we talk about what does it mean to know God, that's what we're going to see in these couple chapters, is that he is the God who is in control. And so in that, let's, before we jump into these two chapters, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. God, we do thank you so much for the fact that you're here. We thank you for the fact we can be in your presence together. We always are, but just the special reality of being with you, with one another, with brothers and sisters, with friends from this place, to be able to come together and worship you and be encouraged and hear from you from your word. God, I pray that you would just speak to us in a sweet and powerful way this morning. I pray that you would remind us that you are in control. In whatever way we need to hear that or understand that or grasp that or own that this morning, God, let us know that you are in control. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So as we go into this next part of the story, the first thing that we want to see is this idea that God is still in control even when life feels like it's out of control. God is still in control even when life feels like it is out of control. Now remember what's happened up until this point of the story, previously in the Exodus type of a thing. They've been, Israelites have been used for slave labor in Egypt to make Pharaoh's cities. They were worked, they've been worked ruthlessly and their lives have been made bitter, the text tells us, in an effort to use them to make these cities. Moses was rescued, we're introduced to Moses and he's rescued as a baby in Egypt, later running because of conflict there, but then God calls him back saying, you're going to go back to Egypt, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. He gets his brothers, and his brother Aaron, and they go back to Egypt. We're going to focus mainly on chapters 5 and 6 today, but we are going to back up a little bit, a couple of verses at the end of chapter 4. It says this in verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that God had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. It's really important that you see what happens in these few verses. 
Moses and Aaron come in. Aaron gives all the message that God has said. He did these special miraculous signs that you you shouldn't be able to put your hand into your cloak and come out leprosy, put it back in, and it get healed. That's a miracle. You shouldn't be able to throw your staff down and it turned into a snake. That's a miracle. Showing these signs that, yes, this is coming from God. They tell the people this. And what does it say? The people believed. The people worshipped. God's going to let us go. This sounds awesome. Let's do it. Let's do this, Moses. So then it goes to chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Okay, so this is clearly not going to be a quick meeting like Moses was probably happening, hoping for. He probably hoped, hey, I'm just going to go in, say, hey, Pharaoh, God wants us to go. We're good, right? And then leave? No, this is not what's happening here. They are, he's saying, to, Pharaoh doesn't just respond with, okay, have a nice trip. He does the opposite. He says, I don't even know who you're talking about. Who is this Yahweh? Who is this Lord? We would assume Pharaoh knows who Moses is talking about. But what is he saying here? Is like, that's your God. I don't know that. I don't follow him. I don't have to listen to him. In fact, they're not going anywhere. I'm going to up the ante on what they're experiencing. It says in verse 3, they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Not only am I not going to let you go, but now I'm going to make it worse than it's ever been. Over the, in, he, telling him, you still have to make bricks, and you still have to make the same amount of bricks. But you know how straw is like the main ingredient that you need to make these bricks, Israelites? You're going to have to find your own straw. I'm not going to provide that for you anymore. And so over the next 10 verses, you see the Hebrews having to search for straw, find what they need to make these bricks, getting beat for their not meeting their quotas. Even though Pharaoh is the reason why this is happening, they're getting beat for not being able to do it. When it it picks up in verse 20, it says this, They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. The they is the Um, Israel uh, uh, supervisors, if you will, the superintendents, those who would represent the people going into Pharaoh as far as like the work labor people. They're coming out and saying, they, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Because of you, Moses, Pharaoh thinks we stink. He thinks we're horrible. God, judge you and judge God because you've made things worse for us. It says in verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you hear them? God, since you started doing stuff toward Pharaoh, the turbulence doesn't seem better. It seems like it's getting worse. Are you aiming at the air currents here? Are you trying to find the turbulence? I thought we were supposed to be free from this, not stick it to us worse. The Israelites had the same problem that we do at times. This idea that to think that because God is in control, then our lives will never hit turbulence. But that is not what God tells us. At no point in Scripture, anywhere, does he tell us you will never experience trouble. You will never experience turbulence. You will never have problems. God never makes that claim. If anything, he says the exact opposite. In fact, he told them. He told them before they were even in Egypt. He told their forefathers. He told Abraham. I have, he told them in Genesis 15, the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God told them this is going to happen. Later in the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes, it says this, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent. A time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Half of those descriptions are turbulence words are difficult things. Sickness, tearing, mourning. There's, God is letting us know this life that you experience will be difficult at times. It will have trouble at times. Jesus says this in the Gospels. I have told you these things so that in me that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. God makes it very clear that at times we will know difficulties and trials and struggles. But it also tells us that God is with us in every situation, and he controls, and he is in control in every situation. Some of those rough situations that we find ourselves within, the turbulent times come because of the consequences of our decisions. This is something that we have to ask ourselves when we're in the midst of something, is this happening because I'm, I'm doing this? Or the situation we might find ourselves in is because somebody else did something. The consequences of somebody else's decisions, their wrongs and sins. At other times, the turbulence we find ourselves within is because creation is broken because of original sin. This is the world that we live within. This is where we're at, and within that, we will experience these things. But Eugene Peterson paraphrases 1 Peter 4 in such an amazing way and exactly what we need to be reminded of. He says this, Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining, refining process 
with glory just around the corner. The presence, I love how he puts that. When life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. It's while life is really difficult that God is working like he does always. The presence of difficult times doesn't disprove God. He is very upfront about what the human experience will be like, and he also promises that he will be with us through these experiences. I think eight of the most beautiful, powerful words written in the entire Bible are Ecclesiastes 3.11, which happens right after the section I just read a second ago. He has made everything beautiful in its time. The situation you're in might seem ugly, but God is going to make this a thing of beauty. He didn't smite you with this. He didn't force this horrible thing on you. Somebody else may have made a difficult thing. You might have did it. Creation is broken, but God is taking the difficulties that we go through and he makes them into things of beauty. He makes everything beautiful in its time. I think about being a passenger on a plane. I have no idea where, where we are, how to navigate the plane, how to get us where we need to go. I don't know any of that, but I know that the pilot does. God is the same. He knows where we're going. He knows the journey. He can see what's ahead. He can see more than I'm able to. It doesn't matter how bad the turbulence is. I'm trusting him who's in control and is guiding me through the turbulence. Does that make sense? So the God, just because there's turbulence, God is still in control. He never said we would never experience these things. That leads to the second thing. We need reminders of who God is and what he's promised when life feels out of control. We need reminders of who God is and what he's promised when life feels out of control. As you move into Exodus 6, it says this, But the Lord said to Moses, this is, remember, they go and they talk to Pharaoh and they said, let my people go. He says, I'm not doing it. Get out of here. In fact, take some more work while you're at it. He makes their jobs horrible. They're saying, man, since God has done this, things are getting worse. Moses, why are you doing this? God, Moses goes and complains to God again. And then God says this in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God reminds them who's in control. I'm the one who's in control here. And Pharaoh is going to do this. God doesn't scold them. God doesn't tell them to stop crying. He doesn't tell them to stop complaining. He says, just wait. Because I'm about to do something. And Pharaoh isn't going to have a choice. First, he reminds Moses, though, who he has been talking to and who people are complaining about. And before he starts acting, he wants to make sure Moses remembers something. And so it says in verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I, listen to all the I statements God makes here. I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. And by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, who the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. 
Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He's clarifying the reality of who he is. You know, we never think to ask what our pilot's credentials are when we're boarding the plane. Have you ever done that? Like, you know, you come up, the stewardess is there. Hey, good afternoon, Mr. Moss. You know, you, know, you want the hand to wipe. Hey, can I, can I see his resume? Can, can we ask for a couple references first before we take off? You don't do that, right? You assume that the airline has vetted this guy. Like, this isn't catch me if you can and some con artist snuck onto the plane. We're past it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch that movie. It's great. But to be a pilot now, to be a pilot now, there are seven different classifications or stages that must be gone through that can take a few years and thousands of miles of travel experience before you can be a pilot. The FAA has airworthiness directives and different certifications for airplanes that have to be built and maintained before they will fly. Sure, mistakes can be made, but when we go up into a plane when we get, and we fly, we're assuming this plane has been vetted and this pilot has been vetted. I just want to acknowledge I used no Ocean Gate illustrations within that section right now. I know it's too soon, so we went to another thing. But we don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just uh, Google submarine. Moses and Israel are in panic. They are in dread mode. And God reminds them of his qualifications. God reminds them who they're talking to. God reminds them who is in the cockpit flying this plane. I am Yahweh. I am your God, not a mere human leader who clearly, when you read the first four chapters, Pharaoh doesn't know what he's doing and his plans don't make any sense. That's not me. I am God. He says, I am the God of the patriarchs, the one who made a covenant with them, the God Almighty, the God who has made myself known and has been working all of this time. I know what you're experiencing, and I am working. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago. He is the God who is always working. He reminds Moses who he is, but he also tells Moses what he needs to say to the people, to say to them, I said I would rescue, deliver, and redeem you, and I'm going to do it. I said I will establish them as my people, and I'm going to do it. I said I will give you a land for you to live in, and I'm going to do it. What, and really, when you think about what God is articulating to them, he's articulating to them the beautiful message of the good news, the gospel. That apart from God, we are in slavery, we are lost, we are in, we are, we are in a, a, a harsh, bitter existence. But God does what is necessary to come and rescue us from that, to redeem us from that, to restore us from that, to deliver us from that through his son dying on the cross in our place. Because of his death on the cross, the payment that we deserve to be freed from slavery is paid. Jesus puts that upon himself, and he gives us freedom through his resurrection. What we see him doing in the Exodus is what Jesus 
did for us. When the turbulence of life hits, we have to know and recall who is going with us. This is not just some mere leader. This is not just some mere mortal. This is not someone figuring out as they go. This is God Almighty, the perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, God of perfect love, God of perfect grace, God of perfect wisdom is the one going with you. When life feels like it's out of control, that God is with you. He doesn't say that him being with you means the bad stuff is going to stop. He's telling you, we're going to go through this, and I'm going through it with you. And at the end, the reality of this is you know that if me, your final chapter, the end of this is one of hope and peace and joy, that which you have now and that which is coming. He guides us on how to be. He lets us know of our sure future. He promises to give us strength, wisdom for the journey. He is with us. We have to remind ourselves when life feels like it's out of control, you are not alone. The God who is in control is with you. We forget that. We need to be reminded of that. And why do we need to be reminded of that so much? Because of the last thing here. We need to be aware of how discouragement and trials can distort our view of God. The difficult seasons of life, the valleys, the hard times, the turbulence distort our view of God. It says in chapter 6, verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. Again, Moses goes, God makes it really clear. I am this God. I am Yahweh. I'm the God of covenant. I'm all these things. Moses goes and relays all of this. And that's like a really encouraging thing to hear about God, right? God's doing all this stuff. God's promising all of this. God's reminding them of these years of history, of knowing how he's worked. He's reminding them of his goodness. All of this different stuff that we need to hear, that's important to hear, that's vital to hear. And it says in verse 9, Moses spoke to the people, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Remember what I said when this whole started? Moses told them the same thing. He showed them signs, and they believed and they worshipped when the flight was steady and the sky was shining. But in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the turbulence, when the things are going nuts, they wouldn't listen because of their broken spirits and how harsh the conditions are. It says in verse 10, So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I have uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The people didn't want to hear Moses talk about God. They didn't want him to remind them of God's promises of their work because of their broken spirits. Their spirits were broken. They were beyond discouraged. They wanted to give up. They saw no hope. And because of this harsh slavery, this isn't how it should be. This is still happening. Life is broken. These are, now, these are predominant examples of this, these two phrases that we have here, spirits are broken, harsh slavery. But this idea of them rejecting the things of God happened earlier in the chapter as well. 
The people said, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand. But that's not true. Moses didn't do that. Pharaoh did that. Pharaoh's the one mistreating them. Moses didn't do that. Moses said, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? But God wasn't doing the evil to the people. Pharaoh was doing the evil to the people. And then Moses said, you have not delivered your people at all. You said you'd free them. They're not free. I want you to do this now, God, and you're not doing it right now. Why are we still waiting for this? The pain and the difficulty and the harsh situations distorted how they were seeing things, skewed their understanding of God, caused them to forget what is true and what they'd been promised. Rather than remembering the information that they, and the truth that they needed to get through this, they were focused only on the situation. They forgot what was true. They forgot what God was like, and it made the situation even worse. Now, here's the thing that we have to clarify first right off the bat within this point. No one is discounting the difficulty of their situation. No one should discount the feelings, and no one is saying these circumstances aren't horrible. They were in the worst of situations, and based on what they're experiencing, their hearts should be crushed. That's good. That's a, that's a healthy, normal response. If somebody were to be in the middle of that and go, this is awesome, I'd be worried about that person. To feel this brokenness, to feel this isn't how this should be, that's how we respond to moments like that. But the problem is, is that we become laser focused on the difficult things and we don't see anything else. We don't think about anything else and we don't understand the truth of what we know beyond the situations. It's like looking through life through a telescope. I mean, if you were to hold your hands up like that, you'd only be able to see one little bit. You wouldn't be able to see everything else. And that's typically what happens. We're in the midst of the worst of situations is we become tunnel vision just on that one difficult thing. And again, it's there. But the problem is, is that when we're looking at things like that, we forget the truth that God is with us, that God has said these things will happen, that he, has going, he is going to provide for us, he is going to protect us, he is going to give us wisdom. He does have people in our lives that are going to walk through with us. We forget all of that because all we see is the difficult thing. Again, the emotions and the situations are real. The situation is harsh, but God is with us. The emotions are real. The situation is harsh, but God is still working. We forget those things when we're focused. The emotions are real. The situation is harsh, but God hasn't left us. The emotions are real. The situation is, is harsh, but you're not alone. We forget all of those other truths because we're focused on the trial. This is one of the reasons why we need community so badly. The more that you do life alone, the harder the turbulent times are. Let me say it again. The more that you walk through life alone, the harder the turbulent times are. They're already difficult. They already sometimes feel too heavy. But when we walk through them alone, we are choosing to make them more difficult than they need to be. We need to have people walking through valleys 
with us, giving us their strength, carrying us if we need it, but also having people who will widen our angle to remind us, yes, that difficult thing that you're going through is difficult, but let's move your hands away and remember there's more also going on. And remember the last time maybe something like this happened. Or remember when so-and-so went through it. Or remember God says this. And remember the truth here. Remember, I'm going to be with you. We need people who can speak truth into our lives and remind us that God loves us. Remind us we're not alone. And remind us that we have hope in him. You need community. You need, uh, that's why church is not supposed to be simply coming on a Sunday, hearing a message, leaving. You still need to come on Sundays, hear a message. Don't think, I'm not giving that excuse. We need to come and hear. We need to be taught. We need to have scripture. We need to learn about faith. We need to learn about the word. But we need to do that so that after we hear the truth of the word, we can live it out together. And so for some of you, the difficulties that you're experiencing don't need to be that heavy. You need to, you need to build connections with the people in this room. You need to get into a life group. You need to go to the events so you can meet other people. As we say here so many times, you need to make friends before you need them. Because those valleys will come, and you should not be alone. God doesn't want you to be alone. He's made it where you shouldn't be alone. If we are alone, there's the thing to grasp. If we are alone in the difficulties of life, it's because we're choosing to be. It's not because of anything God has done. Because the way God has designed things to be is for the, us to do life in community. So if we're alone in the midst of difficulties, we're choosing to not live as God has designed things, which is in community. Does that make sense? It's like he knows what he's doing when he sets things up for us. We need one another. Peter N. says this about the turbulent section of Exodus. He says, despite apparent setbacks, the game plan has not changed. Moses and the Israelites may be panicking, but God is steady and sure, for the outcome is never in doubt. Moses and Aaron should understand the reoccurring setbacks they experienced by Pharaoh's repeated refusals as being well within the parameters of God's plan of deliverance. I love how he summarizes this section we just looked at because everything he says here is as true for you and I as it was for the Israelites then. God is steady and sure. And when it comes to the, your life, there is nothing, there is no amount of turbulence that God can't handle. And there's no amount of turbulence that knocks him out of control of the universe and your life. You, the outcome of where he's taking us and the work he's doing is never in doubt. Nothing you are experiencing will break God's plans for deliverance and hope, and you are still completely within him. He is with you. He is working. He is in control. He wants to give you strength. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you peace. You just have to allow him. So think about this. We think about the storms. I think this is an awesome message to end with communion. Because it's in communion, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. His work on the cross and the life that we have. We're reminded of who is in control. We're reminded of the strength that we have to lean on. We're reminded of the foundation that we live within 
even within the difficulties. And the reality is, is that you're in here today and you're either in the midst of one of these really difficult valley times, you're coming out of one, or there will be one in your future. That's not meant to be sadistic or weird or anything. It's just a reality. We need to be reminded now, if you're in the middle of one, you need to be reminded not to be so laser-focused and allow people to speak truth into your life and remember that God is in control. If you're coming out of one, you need to be thanking God for how he's brought you through those difficult things. And if you're not in the middle of one, you need to be reminded of the truth now to have that in your head, to be able to be ready for when they do come and how to encourage others. But we're going to have the team pass out the elements. If you've never done communion with us before, um, they're going to pass by the trays. Um, the smaller one has the bread. Faith Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand that we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. It's because of what Jesus has done that we're made right with God. It's because of what Jesus has done. We have peace with God. When we put our faith in him, when we align who we are with him, we're given this amazing life with that glorious hope. It then says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and the hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. That even in the worst of situations, God can utilize these things, making them beautiful in our lives. This is the message of the cross and the resurrection, that God has made it, Jesus has made it possible for us to have new life, to have hope, to see and experience the reality that God is in control and he loves us beyond what we can comprehend. Would you stand with me? God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for going in our place, taking our sins upon you so that we can have your righteousness, that we could be forgiven, that we can be restored and redeemed. God, I thank you for making us your sons and daughters. I thank you, God, that we're not alone, that you're in control, that you're always working, that you never leave us nor forsake us. God, for the times where we forget that, let this moment of communion be a reminder of just how much you love us, just how much you're working, and how much you're never going to leave us nor forsake us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's receive communion together. Jesus for the cross. We're thankful for the empty tomb. We're thankful for the life that we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing this last song. And if you want to pass the cups uh, into the um, aisle, we'll collect those. As we think about just the, the message that we've uh, gone through today and this is knowing that God is in control. This last song is just a really appropriate moment of prayerful worship. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.